Welcome to New Consciousness Review. Our guest today is Patricia Aberdeen, a leading social forecaster, best-selling author, and an authority on conscious money. Beginning her career in business journalism as a reporter and researcher for Forbes magazine, she collaborated with John Naisbitt on the publishing phenomenon Megatrends, which sold millions of copies and topped charts around the world in the 1980s. She co-authored the number one New York Times bestseller, Megatrends 2000, the New York Times bestseller, Reinventing the Corporation, and Megatrends for Women, and she wrote Megatrends 2010, The Rise of Conscious Capitalism. Patricia is a member of the Conscious Capitalist Club an exclusive group of CEOs, writers, and academics, and she lectures throughout the world at companies like Deloitte's, Harley-Davidson, and IBM. So this very serious lady, Patricia Aberdeen, welcome to New Consciousness Review. Well, I'm going to try to live down that reputation, Miriam, because I'm really not so serious at all. It's wonderful to be with you. It's wonderful to have you. You know, Patricia, I pulled a very yellowed copy of Megatrends off my shelf. It's one of the first business books I remember buying. And uh, I see that it was dedicated to you as well. Oh, yes, indeed. You know, once you put forecasts into a book, it's irresistible to go back and leaf through it as I did and see how well your predictions held up. And Ah. I was very impressed. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) That's a relief. (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting. This book was written in the 1980s. And here, I'm I'm just going to read a bit. Now at the dawn of the 21st century, high-tech, high-touch has truly come of age. Technology and our human potential are the two great challenges and adventures facing humankind today. The great lesson we must learn from the principle of high-tech, high-touch is a modern version of the ancient Greek ideal, balance. We must learn to balance the material wonders of technology with the spiritual demands of our human nature. I thought that was really fascinating um, coming, uh, what, almost uh, almost 30 years ago. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Um, well, as you know, John Nesbitt, my former husband and, and co-author, and I wrote that together. And uh, I think he would agree that it was my influence that wedged more of the high-touch and spiritual part into the high-tech part. Um, but we, it was, it was a, a wonderful collaboration and it was a, it was a wonderful book. And I, I guess I would have to say that in the 1980s, before spiritual, spirituality was as accepted as it, as it is today, I found myself wanting to, putting, putting, coding the message into the lines of mm-hmm. the book. And, and, and that's a great example, the one that you read. So that, that people who could relate to it could do so, uh, and those who couldn't relate to it could find it in, in a more acceptable way. But it's interesting that, like, today, as, I, as I've worked on the book that we're going to talk about today, I find myself, uh, as you say, 30 years later, um, approaching 
the subject of spirituality and consciousness on a much firmer footing and being willing and um, and in, certainly insisting on putting it right out there to people um, at, because it is it is so much more a part of our lives. Absolutely. Uh, your book is called Conscious Money. And, you know, looking at big corporates and Wall Street, you could consider that an oxymoron. What do you mean <laughs> by conscious money? Well, I, 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 I totally take your point. And I think that's that the unconsciousness of money in large corporations and Wall Street is one of the major um, motivations that I had in writing about conscious money. Conscious money is addressed, unlike all of those megatrends books, to an individual rather than a business audience. I mean, I think that the megatrends books certainly spoke to individuals to a large extent, but they might have been individual managers. Uh, or individual professionals, whereas the whereas conscious money is really speaking to individuals and talking about the role of higher consciousness in personal finance, really. And so, conscious money is all about having a positive, life-affirming relationship with money. And when we can do that, oh, let me add to that. Having that positive life-affirming relationship with money, we do that when we allow our values and our higher consciousness to influence our financial choices while we also observe the sound basic rules of good finance. So when we do that, we can, going back to your starting with the corporations and Wall Street, when we make those choices as individuals, particularly as consumers and investors, we're in a position to take a stand against the unconsciousness of large financial institutions. And when we do that, we can make the world better for ourselves, for others, and for the planet at large. Absolutely. I get the impression from your book that you're actually turning the equation upside down of earning a living. You're actually passionately calling for people to earn a life and to use right living or use all of their creativities to nourish their soul first, their body and soul. Um, It was such a refreshing read. Uh, Expand upon that and tell us a bit about how you yourself got onto this spiritual path, because that seems to be informing very, very deeply your writing. Oh, very much so, very much so, Miriam. Well, you stated it absolutely, not just beautifully, but really poetically, earning a life and, and everything that goes into a life. And as you might expect, I came to this study of conscious money through my own personal experiences. Uh, 15 or 20 years ago when I was still involved in the Megatrends books and still still uh, having had this enormous success quite unexpectedly in my life, uh, I found that I did not have a great relationship with money. Um, I spent a lot of money. Uh, I often did so not from the, the greatest place. I mean, I, I think my friends would say that I was generous with my money. I certainly gave a lot of money away, but sometimes it wasn't from the place of joy that I wanted to experience in that. 
and uh, and sometimes I overspent. Uh, I made a lot of errors in investing, and the the worst errors that I made were when I did one of two things. One, when I thought I was being smart and following the mundane grid of money thinking, and I would invest in a company just because it seemed like, well, maybe I would make some money if I did that. Um, didn't, it, never, it never really worked out that way. It never really did because it wasn't a holistic approach. Or when I relied too heavily on the advice of people other than myself without looking within and seeing how it felt inside. So over time, I decided that somehow my inner self needed to come forth and become part of the choices that I made in terms of money. And I didn't know how to do that. I really didn't know how to do it. So I sort of posed a question, put a question out there, and I said, what if the right financial decision that I'm about to make right now or that I'm pondering making were also the right decision for me spiritually from, from within? And I just kind of... Um, didn't get immediate breakthrough answers, but I really, I nurtured and nourished that question within myself. And over time, I developed a felt sense of what, what, what the right thing to do was for me. And invariably, what was the, the right thing for me was a, a choice that honored my heart, that is to say, that honored my values and my, my intuition to some extent, and my higher consciousness, but also honored my head. So I wasn't out there doing things that seemed oh, wonderfully values-driven but didn't make particularly good financial sense. I wanted to get to that place of integration, to that sweet spot between a money choice and a heart choice or a values choice. And over time, gradually, with, you know, with some, some uh, trial and error, I, got, I developed that felt sense and started making better and better decisions in terms of how I spent my money. Overspending became ridiculous at that point once I activated both of these things. And it, just, it, it fell away naturally. It's as if I, had, I was somebody who's been on a, on a diet and I got to some new place where it just, the weight, you know, you, you talk to these people who are like, I don't know what happened, but I'm just losing weight like crazy and I feel great. So mm -hmm. it was kind of like that in terms of money. It just happened naturally. And um, we'll get to, I'm sure we'll get to the creativity part, but I longed to have, to be more creative in my work, but I was sort of stuck in my head and, you know, it didn't, didn't quite work. But when I made some of these other changes, I also felt that I found I became more creative. And so over time, the joy and the power and the wisdom of conscious money kind of came to me in my life. And so that's why I wrote the book. It's interesting that we are faced with this barrage of consumerism. And um, what you're saying is that it's a false choice. We don't need to go down that route. We don't need to go down what all of the financial um, pundits are blaring at us all the time. Uh, for one thing, it hardly is worth it. You know, you don't get any interest in the bank. Um, how, how do we 
kind of sort through this morass of financial options today. It, it just seems total confusion. It does. It does. I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, I think the problem is, is this, Miriam, that, that even some of the most thoughtful money gurus out there or money thinkers, if you want to, if you want to say that, don't really, don't really put out there that your values should have anything to do with your financial choices. Now, there is one notable exception to that. Many of your listeners might be familiar with the work of Vicki Robin, who wrote the book, Your Money or Your Life. Now, that book definitely, and her teachings definitely involve values and, it, and in, in the financial framework that they talk about. But, you know, so many others, the, the, a lot of the big name folks, really don't talk about that. They continue to embrace, and I think this is really the heart of what you're talking about, Miriam, this great divide that we have in our society when we think about money, which I think of as the mundane grid of money making, which is that there's this enormous divide, there's this enormous gap between the financial life that we live in the external world, as we go about our four primary economic roles that I talk about in the book, as a conscious earner, a conscious spender, a conscious investor, and a conscious contributor, as we go about those things, the mundane grid, which is, of course, not conscious, so you could delete conscious from the, the adjective of conscious from all those roles from the mundane perspective. The mundane grid says it's very simple. Make as much money as you possibly can by any means necessary, preferably legal. Uh, and, you know, if you want to think about value, think about that later when you're a bazillionaire and, you know, give, give some of your money away. But really, that sets us up. That sets, sets up a dynamic that divides us in half, half, that saps our strength, that really divides heart and head. And the, the objective of conscious money is to honor both heart and head, not to go off on some direction going, oh, I'm all about values, I'm just going to give all my money away. No, to, to, to honor yourself too. In fact, I would go so far as to say that self-interest is valid. The, the notion of self-interest is valid. We have to take care of ourselves. We have to take care of our families. The problem comes up in self, is self-interest pretty much solidly associated with the mundane grid of business thinking. And I shock people sometimes when I say that. But ha what are we going to do? We have to take care of ourselves. We have to be self-interested. Self-interest is not the same as greed. That's where I think a lot of misunderstanding happens. When self-interest runs amok, <laughs> it becomes self-greed. Self-interest is, is fine up to the point where it begins to violate your intrinsic values. Then it becomes a problem. It becomes a problem for you personally, morally, but it also becomes a problem for you financially because when you divide yourself in half like that, you, your judgment is affected. You don't make the best judgments. judgments and uh, financial loss rather than the greed that you're trying to, you know, the gain that you're trying to, to have from, from um, exaggerated self-interest can fail as well. So a balanced approach and honoring of heart and head, an appreciation of the role of values in your money life is very important. In fact, in the first chapter of Conscious Money, we start out with an exercise about identifying our values. And I was really quite terrified that people would be like, 
oh, this is so simple, this is not interesting. But I found in five or ten presentations that I've done that people just love it. And why do they love it? Because we don't take time to ask ourselves, what are our deeply held values? And, and if you have to pick, I try to get pe people to pick just one, what's the one value that's, that you hold most dear? That tells a lot about yourself, tells a lot about your priorities, and then contemplate what it means in terms of your financial life. Indeed, and, and they're all good values. And I think yeah. the fact that we all probably would select different ones um, is what adds to the richness of our society. I wanted to go back to this notion of values and this notion of what constitutes a good life because we need to back up. It's, it's like getting a broader perspective. We tend to see earning a living as being our job, or particularly if you're a breadwinner, your job is to, uh, to put money on the table, put your kids through college, pay the mortgage, pay the utilities, and so on, and maybe contribute to a 401k if you have any money left over. And um, people do not factor in uh, the things that make for a good life, the, the, the family relate time with the family, nurturing your inner self. Um, uh, you make a big point of meditation and spiritual practice and things like journaling. And that adds such a, an enormous dimension of, of peace and, and nurturance to one's life that I just love that you have added it into your book. Well, Miriam, I think it's very tempting, and I think that we're all put in, in, in this position to think that we need to take action, that action is what is powerful, and action can be enormously powerful. But when you take action, when you get into that doing this place, from, from a place that isn't centered within yourself, you may be creating a lot more problems than you are in terms of creating solutions. And I, I suppose that at certain times in my life, I, I had the time, thank, 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 thank goddess, I had the time to, 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 to journal. And I am a passionate advocate of journaling. It is uh, something that I do in combination with meditation. Uh, and sometimes the journaling is, is just plain meditation for me. Meditation with a pen, that is. Um, and I, I just saw, I, I, I was gifted with the experience that I made so many, so much better decisions and choices when I gave myself that time that I, I got to a place where I demanded it of myself. And sure, sometimes I don't have as much time as I, as I need, um, as I would like to have, especially in the past two years <laughs> as I worked on this book. But really, I mean, I, I get a certain minimum, you know, just like people who say, uh, as I try to say also, nothing's going to keep me from my workout today or nothing's going to keep me from that wonderful walk that I like to take. Uh, similarly, for me, uh, investing in myself and investing in my creativity and also investing in my financial well-being comes through honoring these mindful practices, be they meditation or yoga or martial arts. Some people can't sit still, and they find, they find the same insights. Um, I have a story about my friend Jeff Klein, 
who is a, a avid practitioner of martial arts and who talks about the insights that have that came to him as he practiced financial arts and and other similar stories in the book. Yeah, tell us about Jason Voss. That was a fascinating one. Yes, indeed. Well, Jason Voss is another friend of mine. He is the author of The Intuitive Investor. He uh he's a young guy. He's only about 40 now. He's been he uh retired from the financial industry but went back to it uh for this other wonderful job in New York that he's doing now. But he was a very successful fund manager. And his fund, which was called the DAIF Fund, which was based in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, it substantially outperformed all the major Wall Street funds, all the major Wall Street indices, I should say, such as the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the NASDAQ, and, and so on. And um, he was given, he was somebody who also meditated, and he was given clear guidance before the, the big stock crash in 2009 to get out of the investment field. And so he's a person who, and he followed it, and he's a, so he's a person who had, you know, I talk about honoring heart and head. He's a great example. He had enormous experience. I mean, I, I am a, I'm, I enjoy being an amateur investor. He is a pro. A complete pro has a storage of great knowledge, but also is a is a devout meditator, and so he is able to marry the uh, intuitive part of the self and and the role of the of emotions and the heart. Many of the messages of intuition come through the heart, and and he is able to integrate them into his investment choices and decisions. And if that's something that interests you, his book, The Intuitive Investor is one that you want to check out. So I talk about that in the chapter on investing, and I also say, now remember, because I'm thinking maybe I'm going to have some of these wonderful spiritual folks reading my books who get an, get an intuition and say, well, I'm going to really go with that because Patricia talks about uh, Jason and the, the great success he's had. Let's remember that we're not Jason Voss. We don't have the background in investing that he has. So let's practice our intuition when it comes to investing and get some experience before we translate our intuitions into uh, some risky financial choices. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's This is the, let's, the financial equivalent of a medical disclaimer. <laughs> yes, it is indeed. <laughs> <laughs> You also uh, talked about a number, uh, the, this woman, um, Dia Amante or something like that, who um, pulled together a, um, a, like a mutual fund investing only in companies with, that passed her litmus test of values. And, and you also talk about how these companies actually have outperformed the S&P 500. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Many, many, in many cases, they have. Um, the person you're talking about is a an, a pioneer in the field of so, what's called socially responsible investing. Her name is Amy Domini. Her company is Domini Social Investments. D O M I N I. I strongly suggest you you look her up and look it up. Um, she created a fund. Gosh, it was an index, I should say. An index is just an intellectual 
exercise in the sense that, that you and I could put the 10 stocks we think are the greatest things since sliced bread into the Patricia and Merriam index, and, and that would be our index. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we invested in those companies. We just created the list and watched how it performed. Now, what she did was create an index of top companies that were in terms of her evaluations socially responsible in all sorts of ways. And again, this is in 1990. This is a long, long time ago, and she's been at it ever since. So she's, she's a true pioneer. And I think that these socially responsible investment funds, and I name a whole bunch of them, you've got plenty to choose from and to research and, and to learn about in the chapter on investing. They're fantastic um, because they've done all the work for you. They've looked at all these companies, and all the main pioneers of socially responsible investing are, are really good, solid companies. And they've evaluated companies. And if you really care about the environment, as so many of our listeners today undoubtedly do, if you really care about uh, sweatshop labor, uh, fair labor practices, these might very well be the kinds of companies that you would want to consider investing. So investing choices can be overwhelming, too, but I make two very simple recommendations. Start by studying about socially responsible investments and consider some of these funds. And then another possibility, especially if you're a beginner, is to join an investment club. And I tell the story about – I was out, I don't tell this whole story, but I was out on a walk – one day uh, here in Boulder, Colorado, I ran into my neighbor. I was complaining about the investment chapter, and I'm working on this, and I've, I've got to come up with some stories, and, oh, what am I going to do? And she said, uh, well, I belong to an all-female investment club, and we try, try to make sure that all of our uh, choices are conscious. We don't own any oil companies. And, and she went on to describe the criteria that was important to her club, and I was like, this is fantastic. Here was my neighbor. I didn't even know that she was involved in a conscious invest, investing club. <laughs> so I told her story, and she and she gained enormous confidence uh, through this club of hers. And uh, these gals, ten gals, have uh, oh gosh, I think it was ninety-one thousand dollars in profit in their in their stock club. Which, if any of them leave, they get to take their share of it with them. So it's it's a fun way to learn about something, an area that could be could seem complicated and overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Now, not not everybody has, uh, particularly in in this economic climate, has uh, discretionary funds to invest. So let's talk about investing in oneself. Mm -hmm. Most important investment you could ever make. So. Um, you you mentioned the the value of meditation. What does that do for you, uh, or for one? And uh, where would you take it to change your life? Well, I think the value of meditation is that it links us. Well, I always look at it from a practical perspective. I'm not the kind of spiritual. I'm the kind of spiritual person who wants to apply my spirituality in my life. It's just my nature. I'm a Virgo, if you will. <laughs> um, so I am always look at, looking at uh, how it can be applied to life. Um, well, so, so certainly meditation can create a better relationship for you with the divine, and it's, it's its own reward. It doesn't need to be practical. It doesn't need to be applied. But in the practical terms that I look at the world with, I would say that meditation forges the link 
between your ordinary mind and your higher consciousness. So it's it's like, you know, finding this gold mine and having this trail, this well-marked trail to be able to go and visit the gold mine um, whenever you can. And, and you uh, carry that into your regular life through mindfulness. You do. You do indeed. And I carry it into my regular life through three steps. First of all, of course, having the mindful practice. And as I said earlier, for some people, perhaps it's not meditation. Perhaps it's martial arts. Perhaps it's yoga. Uh, perhaps it's a, a meditative walk in the forest for somebody rather than a sitting practice as such. Um, so, so step number one is, of course, to create that and cultivate that practice. The second step is to um, not allow yourself to go immediately back to ordinary consciousness after you have completed your time spent in the ordinary practice. And, I, and that may be hard for people to do, but I think it's important because it allows you to take at least a few moments to collect yourself after and to um, almost revisit after it after you've completed it in an interim state of consciousness to to revisit maybe some of the spaces that where you were maybe um, note gently some of the insights or gems that you collected as you went to that gold mine of of consciousness through your mindful practice the third step is to actively take some time to collect uh, those insights. You know, as I tell people, and I usually get a pretty good laugh at, uh, over this, you know, I have one problem with journaling, which is you're not encouraged to take notes. I mean, have you ever gone to a, I'm sorry, did, I meant to say meditation, I said journaling. The one problem I have with journaling is you're not encouraged to take notes. Now, seriously, this is a problem for me because I start, start meditating and I get solutions to problems, all sorts of problems that, that, that I've unknowingly asked for solutions to. So in an, in an altered state of consciousness, they come to me. And so I, I'm, I'm a great advocate of creating the space, creating, and usually it's through journaling. If you don't, you know, if you don't like to be spending much time journaling, just jot down a few key words. It's kind of like, you know, when you wake up and you've had this, wow, this really powerful dream, you go, I know I'm going to remember that. I'll just get downstairs and you get downstairs and it is gone. You, you can't, once you change your state of consciousness, you, you can't recall it. You can't recall it. So I know a lot of scientists have, have talked about uh, solving these major problems, either in a dream state or in an altered state. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So, so, so the, the, the third part and the final part is to allow, allow yourself this transition time to, to journal, uh, to, to note down keywords, to really collect and harvest the great insights that you may have received. And these insights can be applied to changing your life, to, to entrepreneurial activities. You're, well, yeah. you're a big, you're a big uh, proponent of conscious, entrepreneur, uh, of conscious entrepreneurs, aren't you? Oh, most certainly, most certainly. Um, they, conscious entrepreneurs are forging the path to the new economy. And they have a, a marvelous advantage over mainstream business and big companies 
which is that they don't have to get permission from the board of directors. They're, they can make the choices that they need to make. Of course, many conscious entrepreneurs today are um, complaining, rightly so, that they can't access the funds that they may need to start their businesses, but hopefully that's going to ease up a bit more in the coming year as the economy slowly, uh, very slowly improves. But um, I think that um, the, the chapter that I wrote on creativity, the, the wealth of creativity, is all about how that connection to higher consciousness, whether we're an entrepreneur or whether we're a manager in a company or a, an agent, in, a government agent of some sort, it doesn't matter whether we work at our kitchen table or in a government agency or in a Fortune 500 company. If we have a, a mindful practice, we can apply that mindful practice to the creative problem solving that is necessary to create the new economy that those conscious entrepreneurs and other conscious managers and so forth are trying to create in this world. There was a very interesting study uh, that IBM conducted. They asked 1,500 global CEOs what the trait they those CEOs most looked for in a new person coming into the company. The vast majority of them said the trait wasn't, it wasn't finance, it wasn't marketing, it wasn't operational expertise, it was creativity. Mm -hmm. And the way IBM, in its very business-like way of looking at the world, said the reason that they wanted creativity was that the world had grown so complex that we can no longer just use logical, rational um, analysis to find the solutions to the problems that plague humanity. And that's why I believe that we've entered an entirely new economy where those conscious entrepreneurs will thrive and flourish. And I, in fact, I call it the new economy of consciousness. Uh, going back to the megatrends days, John Nesbitt and I talked about in, in, in megatrends, the shift from an industrial to an information economy. And boy, people thought that was pretty controversial at the time. They said, information, how can you make any money over information? This is 1982, you know, 30 years ago. And today, of course, <laughs> that's the only way people seem to think that we make uh, money is through information, but not so much anymore. Today, really, the best companies, the Apples of the world, the, the Googles of the world, are creating wealth. They're creating new jobs, not through information, but through the genius of human consciousness. And that's why our creativity and all those pathways to consciousness are so important to us today, both spiritually and financially, because that's the way that we create something new on this planet today. Um, I was listening to uh, a talk of yours on YouTube, and you, you made a wonderful statement. You said, agriculture leads, led to industry, led to the information economy, now the consciousness economy, and that is a short history of civilization. I thought True. that encapsulated it beautifully. True, and, and I, think that, I think that it goes farmer in the agricultural, laborer in the industrial, clerk or administrator in the information era, and in this new economy of consciousness, we are all creators. We're all artists. We're the artists of our lives. 
Oh, as Don Miguel Ruiz said, yes, absolutely. And you call conscious capitalism both a megatrend and also a movement to restore ethics to business. How do you see this progressing? Capitalism has been quietly brewing over the last, oh, let's say two decades. I don't know that it goes all the way back to the 30 years of the 80s, although probably some of it certainly were there. Um, I wrote a book called Megatrends 2010, The Rise of Conscious Capitalism that was published in 2005 about the beginning of this trend. And I think it's progressing quite, quite, quite rapidly. Conscious capitalism is an alternative. It's a new iteration of capitalism that embraces what economists or business folks would say is the stakeholder model. And that makes perfect sense. It's very easy to understand. It makes perfect sense even to people who aren't particularly interested in, in business. Um, let me put, I, I'll explain the stakeholder model, but let me just put out to you the antithesis of it, which is what traditional capitalism is. And it can be summarized in a statement that was made by Milton Friedman, Friedman who was the Nobel laureate in he, the, the late Milton Friedman. He passed away a few years ago. And he was the Nobel laureate in economics. And he said in 1970, the social responsibility of business is to increase profit. You may disagree with that, as many people would today, I believe, very much disagree with it. But it, it, it exemplifies what's called the shareholder model of cop capitalism. And much of capitalism, especially as it is still practiced on Wall Street, is still about this shareholder or investor model of capitalism, which simply means investors come first. Now, conscious capitalists come along. They want to be successful, too. They want to earn profits, too. But they go about it in a completely different manner. They believe in, again, that phrase, the stakeholder model of capitalism, which, which means that everyone who, every party that's got a stake in the success of the organization, the employees, the customers, the suppliers, the communities, the investors, certainly, and the planet at large, Everybody's interests have an important role to play in the whole. It's a holistic way of looking at business. You know, we had holistic medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not just about drugs and surgery. And now we have holistic business. It's not just about investors and profit. Sure, they play a role, no question. But it's the whole picture. We, the whole business has to be healthy. The customers have to be satisfied. If the customers aren't happy, if they aren't getting the results that they want to get from the product or the service, the investors aren't going to be happy. If the, if the employees aren't nurtured, taken care of, uh, they're not going to be able to take care of the customers. The investors aren't going to be happy. So you can't just say it's about the investors. And, I, and so when I talk about conscious capitalism, sometimes people say, ah, oh, yeah, but you don't see that on Wall Street. Well, that's true. Maybe you don't see it on Wall Street uh, today. <laughs> but you do see it in many companies that are just plain good companies. And so those you mentioned a lot of them good, in your book. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And the extraordinary fact is that 
the studies show, uh, one of my colleagues in conscious capitalism, Raj Sisordia, who is a marketing professor at uh, Bentley College in Massachusetts, with some colleagues, studied 28 companies that he would call conscious capitalists. They included companies like Google, like Whole Foods, like Costco, like Southwest Airlines, all kinds of just plain good companies. And over the course of a 10-year period, so a, a nice long period of time, these companies outperformed the S&P 500, which is the basic standard that the stock market sets for itself. Those are the 500 largest companies. Outperformed them by a factor of 10. In wow. other words, the stock, if, the, if, the, if the S&P 500 went up 100% as it did within this 10-year period, these companies went up over 1,000%. So it also shows that conscious capitalism beats traditional capitalism at its own game, which is supposedly making money and earning profit. Well, this is really the the model that we are moving towards. It's interesting. You seem to see the same dichotomy playing out on the uh, in the past election um, be, between the Republicans and the Democrats. Uh, the, Tell me more about what you're thinking when you say that. That sounds very interesting. Well, I'm thinking that uh, the 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 main Republican talking point was. Um, Reducing We're good taxes, for the economy. Reducing taxes so that the economy could get better, people could make money. It was only focused on the money side, uh, supply side, whereas uh, the Democrats are talking about social values and the social safety net and human values. And, you know, there was like this, this loggerhead. Um, it, it just is so ironic that the party of Lincoln... Um, has seemed to turn its back on human values. That is ironic. That is ironic indeed. And I think that um, I only wish that, that um, <laughs> well, what I really wish is that Barack Obama could read my book, <laughs> but short of that. Well, maybe, maybe somebody out there listening is get. Get Megatrends 2010: The Rise of Conscious Capitalism to Barack Obama or to one of his in, one of his um, financial uh, one of the financial people that makes sense to him because um, I would be frustrated from time to time. Now, don't forget, I'm I my I'm a business person. I come from a business perspective, and I can be as critical of Wall Street and everybody else as anybody else can be, as any other uh, critic from mm-hmm. Occupy Wall Street maybe could be. But I also see the positive contribution that business makes. And I, I have a, a feeling that President Obama doesn't, I don't know, he can't quite get, he can't quite get it out. And if he could do that, uh, he could quiet down Wall Street the way Bill Clinton did and, and allow them to see that he, he can, he, he's not anti-business. It's just too easy when you are perhaps a little uncomfortable with the positive aspects of business um, to be able to articulate an argument that, that demonstrates that you can be pro-business without being pro-Wall Street or without being pro-greed or without being pro all of these old 
dying, crashing systems of capitalism that are, that, that, are, that are going to be history. I guarantee you they are going to be history. But that there's, and what I try to say to people is, yeah, it's bad, you know, Wall Street is, is doing bad stuff and, and business is uh, financially looking strange, but right beside it is a new system, OS conscious capitalism, that is operating and that is holistic and that is going to be the future of the U.S. economy. I think that this is the most important development in business, uh, and, and you've really put your finger on it. It's the, the, the bridging technology of bringing values into human values, into a healthy business model. And uh, Patricia, I, I just take my hat off to you for having articulated it so beautifully. Oh, Miriam, you're so kind. I so appreciate that. That. That really means a lot to me. Um, I have, for whatever reason, uh, that's what my mission is. <laughs> and uh, I, I have given it my best. And uh, it, it means a lot to me when you say something like that. It really does. Um, where do you hope that uh, the business world will move in the the current year what's what's your fondest hope for the impact of this book we already said that the president has to read it <laughs> how, how, well that would are you making an inroad into the wider business community do you think well yeah i mean i it's not so much that i'm doing it it's that um idea. consumers are doing it mm -hmm. the consumers the LOHAS consumer, which of course stands for Lifestyles of Health and Sustainability, is a $290 billion market of individuals who vote with their values, who, mm -hmm. who want to spend their money on important trends like fair trade. Um, they want to buy goods that are that into which human values have been infused. They care about farmers in, and artisans in developing markets. This is a multi-billion dollar uh, global market is, uh, is the fair trade movement. You find it in the people who are oriented, the consumers who are oriented toward health and who are uh, absolutely refuse to tolerate the mainstream brands that are, uh, refuse to be transparent mm -hmm. about what, which chemicals they put in their cleaning products, in their cosmetics and personal care items. And, you know, this all started, of course, with the organic food trend. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when I... And, you know, I bought organic food for many, many years. And when I heard about all of the activists who were saying, uh, oh, no, you can't have chemicals in your cosmetics. I mean, I have to admit, I was skeptical. I mean, I, I, I bought the mainstream line that said, you know, oh, it's only small, small products. And thank God the activists, you know, persisted in demonstrating that it's not small quantities. Uh, women in particular lather huge amounts of personal care products on their bodies. And, and this, when I read this, I really fell on the floor. Um, you're better off eating chemicals in food than you are in putting, in putting it in your, on, in your sunscreen. Because mm -hmm. 
the digestive system is very good at uh, filtering out some of the some of the worst toxins. So, I mean, I'm not saying go ahead and and eat uh, chemicals. I certainly don't follow that. I buy organic every time I possibly can. But it's even worse for your skin because the skin doesn't have the digestive system yeah. or the liver to filter those things. Absolutely. Out. It goes right in the bloodstream, right so in the bloodstream. So you're, you're really just calling on us to vote with our money and vote with our values and, um, you know, be conscious consumers uh, as partners to this conscious capitalism. Uh, in fact, it's conscious money. It's, it's this whole gestalt of how you use your money, how you make your money, how you spend your money. And so we've come to the end of our show. Patricia, I'm sorry that it's gone so fast. Oh, Miriam, let me just echo what you just said. And, and just if I could just add one more thing, it is that with every transaction, financial transaction that you and I make, we have the potential to vote with our values. And when we do so, we lay the foundation for a new conscious economy that will support human evolution from here forward. It's very, very important. Here, here. Patricia, what is your website? My website is patriciaaberdeen.com, and I'm, I'd like to spell that for you because I, my last name has an unusual spelling. It's spelled A-B-U-R-D-E-N-E. Patriciaaberdeen.com. Yes. Well, I hope your book gets the, uh, the, the wide currency that it should, pun intended, uh, Conscious Money by Patricia Aberdeen. Patricia, thank you so much for joining us today. Miriam, thank you for an enormously thoughtful and enjoyable time together. God bless. 